Well, turn your Bibles with me again this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, this morning. Part of, uh, as a pastor, just preaching, teaching through the birth accounts of Christ always involves some measure of uh, maybe working through the fog or unpacking some of the confusing, confusion around the birth of Christ. Um, it's such a tradition-laden uh, moment from the Bible. There's so much out there in songs and in movies uh, that it's not unusual for people to begin to conflate reality uh, with the fantasy or even the joys of the season. Uh, a couple years ago, I remember even teaching or preaching through the birth story of Christ in one Advent series and working through um, where was Jesus actually born. And so when we hear manger, um, you know, it's, it's not like the typical nativity scenes many of us see with some like outdoor barn or a cave. Um, language, linguistically, most Jewish homes had a little front area. We would think it was the foyer where they kept the animals during the winter inside. So it was probably the front part of a house. And archaeology shows us that's where they had stalls and mangers and those kinds of things. And um, some of you are like, what? Um, that was like two years ago. So like popping bubbles, right? Just bursting people's balloons. Um, this morning, the wise men, lots of, about them and uh, that, that enters in. And uh, if you spend enough time around church history, uh, you've got some groups that even name them. There's, that we know there's three of them. We've got them on camels. We've, we've got all these moments. They're at, they're at the birth of Jesus. And, uh, and so it, it feels like sometimes you could spend a lot in the Christmas season from a pastoral perspective of trying to clarify um, how much did Mary actually know? Mary, Mary did you know? I, I really like that song, but how much did she know? More than what the song lets on, but less than what a lot of people assume. So it feels like you could do a lot of that. Uh, this was one of those weeks in studying the text. I, I was talking to Darren before the service. We get together and we pray. And I said, I was just doing all this study this week. And I'm like, where are these guys getting some of this? And uh, everybody, it's, it's like you want so much more detail at times and what it seems like the word offers us. And whenever that happens, people are prone to fill in gaps that are dangerous. Uh, but I think actually the text this morning has so much good truth for us. Uh, and I believe by God's grace, it will bless your hearts and encourage you and uh, maybe convict some of sin and encourage you in righteousness at the same time. I'm going to read through the first 12 verses. Uh, and this sets the stage for Matthew uh, for the next part of what he wants to do in chapter 2. He, he includes this story. No one else does. Um, there are, there's more here than what I could preach in one sermon. Uh, there's more depth and more layers. And so we've tried to hone it down into what we believe would be most helpful for us this morning. But I do want to read the whole text uh, here at the start so we get the flow and we understand and we can just honestly rejoice and hear God's word together. And so Matthew chapter 2, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles with me as I read this morning. I'm going to start right there in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, there's a part of this story that has always fascinated me. Bethlehem was only about five miles away from Jerusalem. 
relatively close. Um, Bethlehem was not this long-distant journey. Bethlehem is the birthplace of David. It is it literally means house of bread, uh, and it in its surrounding pasture lands is where they would raise the lambs that would be slaughtered for Passover. And so there's so much imagery there that we can't unpack about Christ. And so we have these prophets, that are, excuse me, we have these priests and we have scribes showing up and saying, this is, the, this is the prophecy. They hear the wise men. The whole city of Jerusalem is troubled by this news that Christ, the Messiah, has been born. And none of them go. None of them. None of them journey to check it out. It's an easy day ride out and back. This is not a big deal. Bethlehem is not this booming metropolis that would make it very, very difficult to find. You ask enough people and you would have found where's a baby been born at. Now, it is packed. It's swollen with people. We know that there was not room in the end. And, and yet, it would not have been incredibly difficult, but none of these guys go. How in the world are you a priest? You've got magi showing up with a star and you don't bother to take the journey. And it's somewhat shocking. What Matthew is doing here in his account is he is laying out for us this stunning contrast between two kings, King Jesus and King Herod. And he is laying out for us what it looks like when you choose one king over the other. And why would you choose one king over the other? There was an American, he was traveling in Syria a number of years ago. Uh, and he was out in the countryside and just enjoying the region. And he saw shepherds, and there was three shepherds, and they had a massive flock of sheep all combined together. And he saw them lead this, this massive flock down to a spring, and uh, the, the sheep lay down, and they're, they're drinking, and some of them are feeding. And as he's just watching this amazing scene, he begins to realize that it's actually three different shepherds with three different flocks. They just all happen to be together for safety reasons and because of the land itself. But as he's watching, one of the shepherds stands up and walks a distance away and yells out behind him, Manah, Manah, uh, which is in Arabic, follow me. And he just starts walking away and he watches out of this massive combined flock that sheep from all over the place stand up and start following this guy. And he is amazed by this. And he watches a little longer, and the second shepherd stands up and yells, Manah, Manah, and starts walking a different direction. And again, out of this massive combined flock, uh, sheep stand up, and they literally separate themselves and start following him. And it, obviously, he's reminded of uh, the scripture that my sheep know my voice and they follow me. And he's just looking at this, and so then he has an idea, and he goes to the last remaining shepherd with the sheep that are the few sheep that remain now, and he goes, Would they follow me? And so the shepherd says, Well, let's try. And so he puts on the shepherd's clothing. He takes his staff, he puts on his cloak, puts on his turban that he was wearing, and he yells, Manah, Manah, and he starts walking away. And none of the sheep move. They just stay right where they're at. Because they don't know him. And they're not going to follow him. And so he goes back to the guy and, and he says, do the sheep ever follow the wrong shepherd? Does that ever happen? Because very clearly they know their shepherd's voice. And he says, yes, it actually does happen. He said, when does that happen? He goes, when the sheep are very sick, they will get confused and they will easily follow the wrong shepherds. Why do the priests, why do the scribes, why do the people that would have been in Herod's uh, assembly in his throne room, the guards, why do none of them, not one of them, attach themselves to these wise men who have traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles to just check it out? I mean, what do you have to lose? If it's wrong, you get to come back and tell a great story about how these wise men look like idiots. But if they're right, you've seen the Messiah. You found a new king. What Matthew is laying out for us is the only king that's worthy of our worship. 
And he wants to demonstrate that throughout the entirety of his sermon, which is to say the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew. He wants to prove that to us. And what he is doing in those 12 verses I just read to you is laying the groundwork, the foundation for this, for how people should think about Jesus. The fact that he contrasts wise men, these magi, these Gentiles, with chief priests and scribes and Herod is kind of a way of saying even the Gentiles will follow him. How about you? He doesn't include shepherds in his story, other Jews. He puts it on a level that's a little bit like if these guys will recognize the true king, can you not recognize the true king? And so we will have this stunning contrast all the way through of an evil king and a glorious king. And so with that in mind, let's jump in and start trying to unpack this a little bit. I've got to uh, lay out to you a little bit of who this Herod is, just so we really understand the contrast. The readers in Matthew's day absolutely would have remembered this guy, although he has been dead for some number of years. Uh, the first thing you need to know about Herod is he is really a puppet king. He has been set up by the Romans. Uh, somewhere around uh, B.C. Uh, 41-ish or so, he began this campaign of war, uh, rising up and trying to defeat various Jewish factions and other uh, tribal groups so that he can rise to power and become the ultimate king. And around 37 BC, he's conquered enough of the regions that the Romans say, this is the guy we want running the show. Uh, and so he becomes a servant, a vassal king, a puppet king of, of these guys. Um, Countries and nations have done this for a long, long time. The United States has participated in this kind of behavior. Uh, we conquer a place and we put up the guy that we want to rule it, uh, the guy who's going to fall in line with what we desire. And that's what they did with Herod. We're going to set Herod up so Herod will be obedient to Rome. Uh, Herod can rule these very discontent and constantly factious people, and we don't have to worry about them. But Herod had some things about him. Now, now, first of all, there's a number of Herods in history, and so he is known as Herod the Great, uh, a name that he himself liked and enjoyed to claim. Uh, and, and so that already tells you a little bit about this guy. He was known as Herod the Great for two primary reasons. One, he controlled and ruled an area that rivaled that of Solomon, some say even a little bit larger than the region that Solomon controlled. And so how great is his kingdom? Uh, and secondarily, because he did all these architectural achievements. He built all these temples. He, he built uh, the temple, redid the temple mount in, entire, in its entirety. Uh, and so it became known as Herod's temple. He did all these construction projects. Uh, the Herodium, which was this massive fortress. Masada, he built up the fortress on the top of that hill that was later used to defend against the Romans. Uh, he, the Herodium, the foundations of it still exist in the modern-day West Bank. Uh, he rules till about 4 BC when he dies. We have fairly accurate records of his death, and then already this is one of those moments that in the Christmas story, everybody's like, well, I thought Jesus was born at 0 or at 1 AD, and uh, honestly, most likely, it was somewhere between 7 and 4 BC was the birth of Christ. Now, to get there, I'd have to spend the next 20 minutes explaining the difference between different calendars and mistakes and misunderstandings. I'm just not going to waste my preaching time doing that. Like, I'm more than happy to have that conversation with you. But most likely, Jesus is born somewhere between 7 and 4 BC. Herod dies 4 BC. Uh, this is why Jesus then finds his way back. And, and so some will say, well, the zero is when he gets back to Nazareth. I, I, this is when Herod was alive, right? Dies of 4 BC. He is kind of the last great ruler. Um, we just have a bunch of even more degenerate people after him that, that reign much shorter until you get to the destruction once again of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Uh, he is actually not Jewish although he loved the title as king of the Jews. Uh, he was a Moabite. His father was a Moabite, uh, and his mother was an Arab. And so he is what we call an Idumean. Um, but his father supposedly had converted to Judaism. And so this is kind of what gave him the standing. But the only way you're going to be able to rule in this region is to be a Jew, or the Jewish people are constantly going to have an uprising. And so he put himself or portrayed himself as a Jew, even though they all knew that he wasn't. 
he was noted for his cruelty. Uh, Later in his reign, he became very concerned about his wife's family, uh, and so he killed them all, including his wife. He then ordered the murders of three of his sons uh, because he was afraid that they might rise up against him in some way. There was no factual basis behind this. They were making no attempts to do this. It was out of his own paranoia. So when I read in the text that he gets this news, uh, in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. It's because they knew how he would react to this kind of news. He was noted as so vicious that Emperor Octavian at one point said it would be better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Uh, and it was a play, and it's actually a play on word, uh, word on the language in the Greek um, heos and has is the difference between pig and son. But Herod, who personally would not have had a problem eating a pig, didn't kill pigs out of uh, trying to be Jewish, but he'd kill his own sons. He was noted for imprisoning and torturing people. Uh, he was a vicious, vicious ruler. And so when Matthew tells us later in chapter 2, that Herod orders what we call the slaughter of the innocents, the wholesale murder of all baby boy children two years and under, this is not shocking. Um, It's stunning, but it's not shocking based upon who Herod was and the way he functioned. And so he is a cruel puppet king, but he's also a masquerading king. Uh, One of the things that stands out about Herod historically are his his many attempts to be accepted by the Jews. Uh, And so somewhat following Jewish law, but not really. Somewhat worshiping God, but not really. Uh, It was all an attempt to get their, uh, we could say, approval. We live in a world today where the evangelical vote is enough that politicians are constantly catering to the vote. It's like every election cycle, somehow they're all Christians, right? Like, vote for me because I'm a Christian too. Um, some of them are. Many of them are not. Pray for the salvation of political leaders. But Herod wanted their approval. And so one of his first building projects was the temple, and he wanted to attach his name to it. And so what Herod was intentionally trying to do was to rival Solomon in this temple. Solomon's temple had been the greatest temple, and you might remember as we journeyed through Nehemiah, we get to the end, Zerubbabel's temple was not nearly as glorious, and the people are weeping and they're sad because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple, but now they only have Zerubbabel's temple, and they're sad about this, and God actually tells them, don't be sad because the glory of this one will be greater because Christ will come into it, the Messiah will arrive here. Well, this is the temple that Herod uh, just renovates. And he makes it bigger and larger and more beautiful. And uh, he tries to, to fill it with gold and, and to make it as grand as he could. And it puts his name on it, Herod's temple. When it comes time for Herod to dedicate the temple, uh, he was noted for dressing up in as big and uh, as grandiose of royal robes that he could. And he gave a dedication speech that's recorded for us historically. And in his dedication speech, he intentionally does not credit but he robs Solomon's dedication speech language. He plagiarizes portions of his speech. He is setting himself up as a pseudo-Solomon. I'm the second Solomon. Uh, he, does, uh, he acts in, in a way just like David because this is what he does. When David becomes king, David appoints all these priests and reestablishes firmly the right worship. David doesn't get to build the temple because he's a warring man. Um, but... But David sets up a priestly order righteously. Herod did the same thing. When you read here that he calls the scribes and the priests, these are his hand-picked cronies. One of the reasons they don't bother to go to Bethlehem is they knew where their bread was buttered. And it wasn't going to happen by abandoning King Herod to follow King Jesus. These are the guys that he sets up. And so Herod would go and worship at the temple. He, he, would, he sets up priests. I've rebuilt the temple. How can you be angry with me? All these kinds of things. While at the same time, at one point during his reign, 
uh, he traveled to Rome and went and offered sacrifices at the temple to Jupiter to prove to them that he wasn't that sold out to this God over here. While he claimed to be following God, he's committing incest, murdering his wife and his sons. He was a cruel tyrant. He was masquerading as a God come to earth because in the later years of his reign, he accepted the title of some of his followers as being Messiah. When this moment happens, everybody around Herod would have understood the implications. The true better David, the true better Solomon, the true Messiah has arrived. There's nothing a hypocrite and a fake hates more than being exposed. And he can't have it. Now, the truth is that Herod points a great picture or paints a great picture of the king of our own hearts. Now, Herod would do good things. He lowered the taxes on the people twice. Everybody loved that, helped them out economically. There was a famine during one part of his reign, and Herod opened up his own storehouses to feed the people. And so he fed the hungry, uh, paid for it out of his own bank, out of his own treasury. Uh, He lowered the taxes so everyone could flourish. He brought peace. He enlarged the region. And so he helped everybody out in all the practical ways of life. Your life practically as a Jew was better under Herod than any other puppet king set up by Rome. That's hard to hate, isn't it? You just made my life better. While at the same time, to refill his his treasuries, he broke into the sepulcher of David and Solomon and stole out from their tomb the golden furniture that had been stored there with them. And he robbed the tombs of David and Solomon to refill his own treasuries. How quickly people will turn a blind eye to injustice, cruelty, and wickedness as long as it makes my checking account better. There is a stunning hypocrisy that is being revealed here. They didn't want to rise up against Herod because he made life better. And I believe in this, Herod is a great picture of how frequently we are ruled by our own hearts. In our sin, we act in ways that we are convinced are best for us. I was talking to someone this week, and I said, you know, I think broadly people are predictable. I think human nature is predictable. I think people are predictable. People, Steve's opinion, will always act, apart from the Holy Spirit, in what they believe are their best interests. Now, hear that sentence right what they believe are their best. They very well may not be what's best for them, but people will almost always act in what they believe is best for them. Uh, Most people do not wander through life trying to mess everybody else up. Most people are not, they're not, if you you go out to the store at Christmas time or you think years ago when we'd have these mad rushes at, you know, Toys R Us when it was still around, people pressing in, trying to rush in to get their kid, you know, I'm dated enough, I'm Gen X enough that it was like the Cabbage Patch doll, the Transformer of that year, whatever. I think of the Furby one year, which is just mind-blowing because that's a creepy little puppet. Um, But, but like, whatever it is, they're, they're not standing there thinking, I'm going to stop this man from getting that toy from his child. All they're thinking is, I'm going to get it for me. People will tend to act in what they are convinced are their best interests. And this is part of the danger of our hearts. We will function in a way that we believe genuinely is best for me. This is why Proverbs actually says, a righteous and a trustworthy man will swear to his own hurt. And what that means is someone who is righteous, i.e. someone who follows God, is willing to suffer for the sake of truth and justice prevailing. That's somebody you can trust. But it's rare. Most of us function through life thinking 
What's best for me? Now, now, the way that really gets warped is most of us also are arrogant enough to believe that not only do I know what's best for me, I also happen to know what's best for you. And so if you would simply do what I think you should do, we'd all be happy. And we wear these lenses that we that's how we see the world. And then suddenly we come to the gospel and we, we have these passages that we'll get to, I don't know, within weeks or certainly in the first part of the new year where Jesus will suddenly say things like, if someone asks you your coat, give them your cloak. If they ask you to go a mile, go two. If they hit you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. And none of these are very self-serving things. And so we'll come up with all kinds of caveats why we don't have to do any of that. I actually had a seminary professor tell me once that because of dispensationalism, none of that applies to us. I'm like, well, that, <laughs> I remember sitting in class thinking, I, look, I want to believe that. <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll that some of that at least is applying to me. Our own hearts will convince us, well, we're doing some good. A friend of mine used to preach a sermon, and, and then he would say, um, he, he would joke about winning the lottery, if somebody played the lottery, if they won the lottery. And so at the time, you might remember McDonald's did the little Monopoly pieces. Some of you are old enough to remember this, where you could win the Monopoly, and you'd win a million dollars. That was the Christian version, right? Because like, I'm, not, I'm not going out playing my scratch-offs. But, but if I go to McDonald's and get a small fry, and I get the little sticker that says, Boardwalk, I'm a millionaire. What would you do with a million dollars? And, and, and I remember him preaching this sort of the first time I heard this, and I'm sitting there, and I, and I thought this. I said, well, first of all, I'm clearly going to give back to the church. And, and I'm picking a number in my brain out of the million dollars. And I'm not telling you what that number is because some of you would judge me for generous and some of you would judge me for stinginess. So, but like all of us out of greed, right? So I'm, I remember thinking this number and, and he's just talking it up and about a house and a, what car would you get? And I remember thinking so good of myself because I thought, no, the first thing I thought was what I'd give to King Jesus, you know? Um, and then he like drops a hammer in the sermon and he's like, and most of you probably thought, well, first I'll give to this so that it frees your heart to do whatever you want to do. Do you think we ever functionally operate that way? I've done my good deed. I've done my right thing. I've invested this much time. Now the rest is Steve World. That's who Herod was to them. He lowered our taxes. He fed us when we were hungry. He stopped the wars. Eh, incest. That's his family. It got nothing with me. Murders his wife, her entire family. You know, everybody's got a bad day. Assassinated three sons. Gave offerings to Jupiter. Meh. This is the way our sinful hearts work. And so even as Christians, we get saved, right? So, so the salvation moment, conversion moment is supposed to happen where we see ourselves as sinners. We see God who's who he is. We understand that God is holy and he judges us as sinners. Everyone is born a sinner. And then we prove it with our own actions anyway. We know this to be true. I've yet to run across a person truly convinced that they're altogether good. They simply think they're better than others. But, but we all, I think we just intuitively know this. Any, any person that's intellectually honest knows they do terrible things. They think terrible things. So I'm a sinner and God judges it. And he says, you're a sinner and I can't have any part with sin. Sin is against me ultimately. And so I'm going to judge sin and sinners and they are going to be eternally in judgment but I love you. And so I send my son to live a perfect life, die a sinless death, and resurrect. And if you will, he will pay the price for your sin. If you will turn from your sin, put your faith in him, I'll save you, I'll make you mine. We have this conversion moment, but then we're left here in our flesh until we get to glory. And so then we run into moments like Galatians where he tells us when we are operating our flesh, he says we bite and devour one another. And it's like we nip at each other. We bite it. And he's talking believer to believer. Or in James chapter 4, he says we war and we fight with one another because we see each other as obstacles. Get this, because we have these lenses that we think what's, no, what's best for us. They know what's best for everyone else around us. 
and we get mad because everyone else is a hurdle to my happiness. The king of our own wicked hearts rules over us. To be ruled by our own hearts, though, is to be ruled by a cruel taskmaster. It says it has our best interest, but it can't deliver. This king of our own hearts, it leads us into unnecessary conflicts. We demand from others to fuel our sense of security. This king of our own hearts leads us into despair because we can't control our circumstances to make us happy or to make us feel safe or successful. This king of our own hearts whispers in our ears, we deserve better. While at the same time, isn't it so ironic? Our hearts say we deserve better than this. At the same time, our own hearts tell us that we have no worth and value. Our hearts are despotic rulers like Herod. Herod is simply a picture of the kind of king we should never want. And so Matthew is building a story to juxtapose, to set opposite Herod and Jesus. And so that's Herod. So now let's look at these guys who choose, right? And so we have these wise men that are seeking the true and right king. Like I said at the start of the sermon, uh, like a lot of the Christmas story, there's a fair amount of confusion about these guys, uh, whether it's from uh, fiction stories, movies, and even some historical moments that uh, are not entirely trustworthy. And all that can blend together in a confusing way. And so I just want to unpack some of that as we go through and, and help us to understand because the clarity of who they really are and what Matthew is doing with them is very, very important. First of all, uh, we just note in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. First and foremost, these guys are what we call magi. Uh, magi is where we get our modern term magician from. Uh, they are a whole, uh, that's a massive umbrella term for who these guys functionally were in the ancient Far East. And so think modern-day Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait region, so far east uh, where Babylon would have been, uh, these are magi. And so magi were astrologers and astronomers at times. They, were, uh, they would know a number of languages. They are scholars. They spend all their time reading, reading uh, literature, making notes, studying. Uh, they would study other religions. They would study their own religions. Uh, they were consultants to the king. It was not uncommon for them to be brought along as consultants in military endeavors. They would give advice to different people. Sometimes they would be placed in kind of, you think, middle management governmental roles. These are magi. Uh, they would typically, because of their position, be able to accumulate their own kind of wealth. And so they come from the Far East in order to come and see or find uh, this king that has been born the king of the Jews. They make it very specific, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where did they find this out? These guys are not kings themselves. Um, as much as I like the song, We Three Kings, they're not kings. I'll, I will tell you in a minute where that comes from. Um, and so while it's wrong, it's easy to see where, where it comes from. But there's this mystery of this star. And there's a whole question of what is this star? Where does this star? It's a miraculous kind of star because it moves and it's, they're now able to chart direction but it only gets them to Jerusalem, and it's only after their meeting with Herod that the star then moves this five, I mean, five miles is not a massive distance to turn, uh, to determine by tracking by the stars of where to go, but it moves enough to rest in a place that directs them specifically where they're supposed to go. So that defies all scientific explanation. It is a miracle. I could stand here and say it's some kind of comet, it's some kind of star event, some, some kind of astro astrological event. We don't know. It's a miraculous moment. But the question is, why would they think that the star would point to this? Well, it comes from a passage in Numbers, Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And commonly, rabbis in rabbinic literature, they believe this is what must have 
been the start. And so rabbis who don't even believe in Christ believe that this is a prophecy that a star would somehow shine. Now notice the end of that verse. It's a crush the forehead of Moab. Who did I just tell you Herod was? You want to talk about torquing this guy's shorts. Like, you know, if he's like, well, why are these guys? Imagine that moment. Herod's got all the priests and the scribes there, and he goes, now, fellas, these guys say they followed the star to find <clears throat> the Messiah or the, this king of the Jews. Where would they have got them from? Imagine being the guy, you know, as they all turn around. It's like my dad told me it from serving in the army. He said, you don't volunteer for anything. It's like that moment they ask for a volunteer, and everybody else except for the one guy takes a step backward, right? <laughs> Looks like this guy's hanging out there. This is the guy that has to tell Herod, uh, uh, scepter star out of Jacob, scepter out of Israel, and he'll crush the forehead of Moab. You know he's not shouting this out. Herod, who's already paranoid, would have absolutely understood this to mean, if this is really the king of the Jews, this is the guy that's going to kill me. This is the guy who's going to destroy me. It's this obscure passage, but this is what is driving them. Then the question is, well, how would they have even gotten this material, these guys from the Far East? Well, certainly, most assuredly, the material came from the captivity of the Jews in Babylon some 400 years earlier. When they were held and taken into captivity, they clearly took uh, the, the scrolls with them, or many of them. They had access because of Nehemiah, and you have Ezra, and they're reading the word, and they're seeing the prophecies. But then first and foremost among these guys, Daniel. Daniel, who for a season was what? The head of the Magi. So they would have had access to what we would consider biblical literature. One of their leaders for a time, if he's going to be studying, this is what he's clearly studying, is the true word of God. Most likely this is where they had access. I think a fourth question is when does this happen? Um, if you walk into our home, there's two different nativity sets set up, and both of them have wise men there. And you have the infant, and you have Jesus. And I remember the first time how appalled I was as a child hearing a sermon, being told that that's probably not the case, that by the time they showed up, Jesus was walking around as a two-year-old. I was just appalled by this as a child. How dare they crush my hopes and dreams, right? As this picture in my brain. The reality is we don't know. We don't know. Uh, people guess. So, so if you land on the side of Jesus as a toddler, they're arguing that the star rose. It took these guys a long time to get their stuff together. <laughs> We've all had road trips to you know, pack the car, pack, pack the camels and get there. And by the time they got there, it was some two years later. That's why Herod orders the death of all the baby boys two years and under. So Jesus must have been about two by the time they show up. Great, I hear you. I also believe the star could have showed up two years before Jesus was born and led them. What's clear to me from the text is nobody knew at this moment how long Jesus had been born. Nobody knew. The wise men didn't know. Herod didn't know. Priests didn't know. And Matthew doesn't bother to tell us because it's not important. That's what it boils down to. So we don't know when. What it tells us, though, is there's some confusion among these guys. How old's the baby? How long has it been? We're not sure. And it's not real important. Um, and I'm not interested in taking longer in the text to try to argue from the original languages for what's I don't think it matters. They show up when Jesus is either an infant, somewhere between infancy and two years old. These guys show up. So then we have all these other myths about these guys. Um, we've got names. If you, if you study enough uh, history, they're, they're named. You get three of them. Um, they're called kings. Uh, and famously, they're always on camels. That's what we got. Why? why? Um, contra contrary. Um, like camels, while a mode of transportation, were not the most common mode of transportation. Um, think more ancient kind of horse. And so they could have ridden on camels. They may not have ridden on camels. There may have been three of them. There's at least more than one of them because it's plural. There could have been six of them, 12 of them. Uh, the odds that it was just three guys on their own without some kind of escort carrying these kinds of riches would be 
incredible. So where does all this come from? Well, some of it comes just from history, the assumptions, three gifts, three guys. Um, so let's give them names. And, but the history that gives them names isn't for a few hundred years after this. So it's not real trustworthy. Um, maybe that's their name, but most likely not. That's lost to history. What happens to them afterwards? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. And so there's all this information we don't have about them. But some of the key moments of it, they're not just people dreaming it up. It's actually people who understood what Matthew is doing in this chapter, and they start looking for the... See, what Matthew is doing is he's saying Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he is the Messiah. And so what these guys start doing then is they start looking for all kinds of references or prophecies, and they start then reading that back into the story with facts and details. And so some of this comes from texts like Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, Solomon writes it, and I'm going to walk through this in just a moment, but Matthew is clearly contrasting Herod with Solomon in this passage. Well, Psalm 72 is a psalm that Solomon writes as, as the king at the time, the, the most powerful king that ever ruled in over Israel, the, the king who, who exerted the most influence, the king who was the most respected worldwide in the known world at that time. Uh, Solomon writes about what the future king would be like. And in verse 10 of Psalm, psalm 72, he says this, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. So guys read that and they were like, that's what this is. These are kings bringing him gifts. So we get songs like We Three Kings. Now when you read Psalm 72, we, would, we now understand a little bit better in church history and uh, progressive revelation that there is a first advent or arrival of Jesus but there's going to be a second one. And the first one, he comes as a suffering servant. And the second one, he's going to show up as a conquering king. And so we understand when we read Old Testament prophecies, some reference the first arrival, some reference the second arrival. Psalm 72 verse 10 is most likely a reference to the second arrival. But these guys reading it were like, oh, this has to be it. We have guys showing up with gifts. So suddenly, even though Matthew clearly says they're wise men, they're not kings, suddenly they become kings instead of magi. This is, so it's confusion, but from a well-intended source. Isaiah 60, verse 6 is very similar for all those same things. But listen to this one. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring, listen now, gold, and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So we have some prophetic fulfillment here. We have others reading into it. Some might press these too far, be too dogmatic about them. This is one of those moments that all good Christians can differ. Because Matthew's going to point out a number of prophetic fulfillments. So to those of us who believe in Christ, we don't doubt who this is. There is some mystery to us about which prophecies are fulfilled now, which are in the future. But I am telling you, you're okay to have three dudes on camels on your mantelpiece. It's okay. Because it comes from people that are saying Jesus is the prophesied one. What these guys point out to us, though, is what true worshipers really look like. Worship plays a massive role in Matthew's gospel. He will routinely mark out those who worship Christ. He uses that kind of language more than any other gospel author. It's as part of his plan to show who Jesus is and contrast those that believe and those that don't. Jesus is king and Jesus is Messiah, no matter if anyone ever recognized it. But Matthew wants to indicate that those who really believe will worship him as king. It's not uncommon for some to associate even the different gifts that are given here with different facts about Jesus' life. And so some will say the gold is given to symbolize that he's royalty. The frankincense to symbolize his deity because it was frequently mingled as a rising incense to God. 
and myrrh, which was a common embalming uh, spice to indicate his death. And so say he's given gold because he's king and frankincense because he's God and myrrh because he was born to die. Maybe. The reality is historically, magi were noted in multiple places for bringing these identical gifts to other kings. Most likely, their wealth and the amount here is given to back up where did the money come from to run to Egypt and live there for a few years. But yet, those things are still true, though, because he is a king, and he is God, and he was born to die. These men come, and what is most significant is their response. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Do you know Matthew's going to use very similar language later in the mouth of Christ? This idea of great joy. These guys are filled with great joy when they realize we've now, from this supernatural event, are going to about, we're about to meet God's king. And they're filled with this incredible joy, and they give massive amounts of wealth to this carpenter, his very young bride, and this little baby. And then they head out of Dodge. Who does this? They have, they have put their own lives at risk. They now know this after a meeting with Herod. They have taken a great journey. They have sacrificed time and effort and energy. They've been away from their own families also they can see this king. And they are filled with joy. Later, Jesus will say this. Do you know what? The person who is in the field and they find the treasure hidden in the field, they go and they sell all with this kind of language, with great joy so that they can have this treasure. They get rid of everything. When you and I come to see who King Jesus really is, we don't come white-knuckling, being drugged down the aisle, so to speak, to Jesus. Our hearts are filled with great joy to be able to worship the true king. And it is marked out by a life that is willing to walk away from everything for the sake of following him. And so Jesus uses language like, you need to love me more than mother, father, sister, brother. You need to sell all and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The joyless Christian is an indictment against the king. The happy heart of the believer that recognizes I have been rescued and I am owned and I am a son or I am a daughter of the risen king and that makes me a joint heir and a prince or princess in his kingdom and one day he is going to say to me, enter in, well done, thou good and faithful servant, come on into my rest. That is joy. These wise men serve, these Gentile wise men serve is a glorious picture of what a true worshiper is like, and then that takes us then to the true king. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as the one true king. Revelation 19 describes that scene this way, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Until that day, that glorious day yet to come, Matthew is demonstrating to us, he's really laying out to us a choice, whom will we serve? To which king will we bow? The evil king of our own desires like a King Herod? Or will we seem to risk everything 
to bow before the one true king. And so Matthew, all woven in here, points to truths about Christ. The first thing he points to in his text here is that Jesus is a king like Solomon. Hence, towards Solomon are actually all over this passage and its prophecy in Micah that gets quoted. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh are all reminiscent of Solomon's temple and his wealth. In 1 Kings 10.2 and 10.25, the, the queen of Sheba comes and she brings uh, gifts like these to dedicate to Solomon and to his temple. The wise men are reminiscent of kings bringing similar gifts from afar to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 9.22. With this story, Matthew is putting increasing prophecies on display. There is no gospel author that quotes the Old Testament more than Matthew. There's no gospel author that cites more prophetic fulfillments than Matthew. All the way through, he wants us to understand this is the Jesus that has always been talked about and told. Solomon, when he wrote Psalm 72 as a tribute to the future Messianic king of Israel, he says this in Psalm 72, 9 through 11, May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gift. May all kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. Just like in chapter 1, Matthew said he is the son of Abraham and the son of David, to bring imagery into their brains. With his citation of Micah and his emphasis on the gifts, his choosing to tell this story, remember it's a choice. He leaves out things. He leaves out the angel appearing to Mary. He leaves out the shepherds, but he includes these guys to make a point, and it's to leave on them for him to say Jesus is the king. He knows that people, are, the Jews are going to think, but is he a king like David? Is he a king like Solomon? And this is Matthew's way of saying he is a king like Solomon, but he's a better Solomon. Solomon was the wisest king Israel had ever had. He ruled the largest region until Herod. He raised the temple out of nothing. Solomon ruled largely in peace and prosperity. Solomon's reign was the high watermark of Israel. Jesus is the better Solomon. Jesus will come and enact perfect justice with all empathy and holiness, righteousness, and love. He will receive worship. He will lead in peace and prosperity with all of his wisdom and his might, he's saying that Jesus is a better Solomon, but he's saying he's also a king like David. When Matthew cites Micah, he does something very interesting that I wanted to show you linguistically. The original citation is largely in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so this is the way it looks uh, in your Bibles, Matthew 2, 6, if you have the ES, in the ESV this morning, other translations, some of the words will be a little different. But he says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Matthew does something that quite a few authors in the New Testament do. They piece together other different portions of scripture. And that's exactly what Matthew does here. And so the first quote is from Micah 5.2. You of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. I won't take a lot of time here, but some of you say, well, that word doesn't match exactly. Matthew is quoting the Greek translation of the Torah. So he's quoting the Septuagint. Our ESV is going back to original languages, not dependent on the Septuagint. So there's some word changes, but that's clearly what he's quoting. Except for this last phrase, a shepherd, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That he's taking straight from 2 Samuel. Why? Well, if you study Micah chapter 5, you go a few verses further, and it starts emphasizing or talking about shepherding rulers and kings. Because shepherds is the language that God chooses more than any other to describe a good or a bad ruler. But he chooses this passage because he's pointing to David. This is talking about the anointing of David as the king. It's Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is a king like Solomon, but a better Solomon. Jesus is a king like David, but he's a better David. David who defeated the giant. David who defeated numbers of Israel's enemies. David who ruled with justice. David who was a man after God's own heart. David who sacrificed his own safety for their deliverance. 
Jesus is the better King David because he defeats our sin and even will die to deliver us from death. So Matthew is telling them there is two kings here. There's a King Herod, there's a King Jesus. There is the king of our own hearts or is there is the king of the Jews, the shepherd of our souls. This theme of a good or bad king in shepherds. In Ezekiel, he talks about the bad shepherds of Israel who are more like hirelings who when they're cold at night, rather than building a fire and bringing the sheep close, they slaughter one of the lambs to clothe themselves in its wool. When they're hungry, instead of thinking, I'm hungry, let me make sure the sheep are fed, they kill the sheep and they eat them. Those are bad shepherds. They're in it for themselves. A bad shepherd is defined by this. They use their power and the position to serve themselves. A good shepherd uses power and position to serve the sheep. That is the defining difference. Who does Herod use his power and position for? It's ultimately for himself. What about King Jesus as a shepherd? Isn't he described as the shepherd who walks with us through dark valleys? Who does not abandon us in difficult times? Isn't he described as a shepherd who leads us to greener pastures? Isn't he described as a shepherd who walks us beside still waters? Isn't he described as a shepherd that even when we have enemies around us, right? Like some soldier on the front line, surrounded by the enemies, they can't sleep that the best food they get is some foul MRE. They can't rest because they're under constant threat. Isn't he the good shepherd that sits down with us and he makes us so safe he can actually banquet with us in the presence of our enemies? Isn't he the good shepherd that leads us ultimately to a land of peace and prosperity and safety isn't he the good shepherd that if we were to wander astray, he comes chasing hard after us? Isn't he the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep? Isn't he the shepherd who is the doorway entrance that it's only through Christ that you come in to the fold? Isn't he the good shepherd that the sheep know his voice and follow him? One king murders his own sons to preserve his legacy. The other king dies to save our lives and make us sons and daughters. He's such a good shepherd that at one moment in his ministry, he weeps and is in great turmoil for those that have no shepherd. He understands that Satan's ploy and plan to harm him is so that he can get at the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherding gate. He is the shepherd who calls us with his voice. He is the shepherd who lays down his life for us. To worship him is to see him as the king that he is. He is the better king than your heart or my heart could ever be. And yet to come under his rule is to see him for who he is and to see yourself for who you are. It's my prayer that God would open our eyes to celebrate the shepherd king, the good king, the true king, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. Like the wise men, may we see him as worthy of our time, our riches, our worship, our very lives. The best way we can celebrate Jesus at Christmas is to live out lives that celebrate him as king. Who rules and reigns over you? Does he just get the checkbox and then all about me? Or does he daily rule and reign over your life? And so I call you to come see and celebrate the only king that's worthy of our worship. Father, we thank you for these wise men of old, these magi who came and beheld, who saw him and gave him worship. Father, we are humbled by their sacrifice, by by their endeavors, by, by their engagement with the truth and their, their joy at his discovery. Father, following you is joyful. 
It fills our lives with a, with a kind of purpose and meaning, with a worth and a value, because we are safe in you, and we are owned by you, and we know you. And so, Father, help us to be sheep who hear your voice and follow you instead of following the desires of our own hearts and being ruled by the wickedness of our lives. Father, deliver us from our selfishness that we might worship and honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.